We tend to think of religious membership as clear-cut and exclusive. A member of Group A could not possibly also belong in Group B. Scholars studying disempowered populations also see religion as instrumental, a means for accumulating material, social or symbolic capital. How do these perspectives fit together in Kenya, a diverse and predominantly Christian country with high rates of material insecurity? And how has the Christian revival of recent decades influenced patterns of mobility and conceptions of religious belonging among Kenyan Christians? Hi, and welcome to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows. In each episode, we feature innovative research in the humanities and social sciences by one of our fellows. Let us turn now to Professor Ruth Hakoen, who's interviewing Dr. Jonathan Giz, a social anthropologist and Africanist whose research focuses in part on religious change. Jonathan, how did you begin your interest in African studies? My academic interest in Africa started in 2008. I was uh, working at the time as a research assistant at the Department of Middle Eastern and African History at Tel Aviv University. And uh, I recall that as part of that work, I've been asked to interview asylum seekers in South Tel Aviv in, in Israel. And I was really so touched and moved by the encounters and the people that I came across there that I soon decided that this should be the center of my work. But I think today I would like to focus more on a specific research project uh, that looks at religious mobility in, in Kenya. I learned, Jonathan, that you have a monograph that came out last year in 2018 on the subject. And the title is a rather long one. <laughs> Traditional churches, born-again Christianity and Pentecostalism. And then religious mobility and religious repertoires in urban Kenya. Yeah, it's quite a long title. Um, it's based on my doctoral decent uh, research, um, which was uh, carried out at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Between 2010 and 2015, I was uh, part of a research project sponsored by the Swiss National Science Foundation. The project was called Structure Anthropologique du Religieux, Boutinage et Voisinage. And in addition to myself, it involved my doctoral supervisor, Ivan Dro, as well as uh, my colleague, Edio Soares from Brazil and Jean Rey from Switzerland. I joined the project quite early on, and my role was to conduct research on religious mobility in urban Kenya. What was the idea behind this project? Well, there's a lot of research, actually, that recognizes the tension between, on the one hand, formal religious scripts, and on the other hand, actual religious practice. So if you think, for example, about religious identity from an institutional perspective, you may have certain expectations, such as regarding exclusive affiliation or minimal amount of mobility or full endorsement of institutional authorities and dogmas and ideologies and the like. By contrast, if you think about um, things from the perspective that we would like to call lived religion or everyday religion, that perspective seeks kind of a non-idealized capturing of actual practice. And from that perspective, you're likely to find that people are, let's say, a lot more flexible in how they navigate between multiple, sometimes contradictory, even incommensurable or seemingly incommensurable religious universes. So in our work, my colleagues and I sought to balance between these quite disparate perspectives uh, through the introduction of a particular concept, boutinage. Boutinage? What do you mean by boutinage? It rings like 
bricolage, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, kind of where we're heading with this. The term is derived from another French word, boutine, um, which refers to the foraging action of bees and other pollinizing insects. Um, so we, of course, use it metaphorically and we refer to the back and forth movement of believers between various religious centers. So we recognize the possibility of such commuting, as it were, between multiple uh, religious practices and institutions. And by that, the boutinage perspective is able to account for both what we may call diachronic and synchronic mobility. And I'll explain. Diachronic boutinage corresponds to the traditional notion of exclusivity of affiliation, and it might be associated with an itinerary of conversion, or what we sometimes see in the literature under conversion career, so-called. So if we think about diachronic boutinage, then this implies uh, questioning the life trajectory and certain moments in life in which we shift from one denomination to another, depending on certain circumstances and different interests. So think, for example, about geographic relocation or coming of age or romantic breakups and uh, all sorts of family ruptures. By contrast, synchronic boutinage relies on the idea of simultaneous practice, which might be limited to a specific tradition, so for example, Catholic or more broadly Christian universe, or any kind of particular range or tradition. Of course, when I say synchronic, I don't mean that uh, you do everything at the same time, but within the same period of your life. So we may think, for example, about a person who practices at the Anglican church, but throughout the week attends, say, a home fellowship at a Pentecostal church um, hosted perhaps by a neighbor. And at the same time, they might also visit the countryside where they would be invited to the mosque by an uncle, or they might go to a traditional healer uh, for health reasons, etc., etc. Have you met such people in your research in Kenya who combine many traditions in this fashion? Yes, absolutely, yes. I, I would even uh, say that the vast majority of Kenyans that I spoke to have either changed religious traditions in the past or were presently maintaining multiple practices and multiple affiliations, yes. I'm sure that later we will hear stories. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. What's the purpose of using a metaphor? I'm now referring to the boutinage. I imagine that there is no short of terms depicting religious change. Why not simply talking about conversion or any related concept? Well, that's something that we really thought a lot about. And the idea was that in choosing a biological metaphor such as boutinage, the purpose is to provoke... Uh, scholars, a certain shift towards a more comprehensive and uh, I would say inclusive perspective that would prioritize what people actually do. Um, and first and foremost, with this term, we proposed uh, to reconsider religious mobility as a fundamental way of being. Religious mobility is a fundamental way of being. No longer should we regard practitioners belonging to this or that denomination as the so-called norm, as would be expected by religious authorities, certainly within the Abrahamic traditions. Rather, the norm might be found in actual mobility, in what we call boutinage, whose organizing principle is that of a, a polymorphous, quite fluid changeability of identity. 
If we accept the enduring fact of mobility, if only as an exercise in shifting perspectives, then that opens the door for a particular set of questions. I'll give you some examples. We can ask, how might we be able to capture and map out the dynamics of religious identity? And can we even do that within a rigid toolkit? What are the social codes, if any, that are associated with such mobility across different social contexts? And what are the social consequences and penalties for such mobility? How frequently do people move and within which range of possible patterns do they move? And what might be the motivation for such mobility, which is another big question. And lastly, I ask, what are the relations or maybe tensions between practitioners' stated religious identity and what they actually do, the de facto lived religion practice? So when you talk about boutinage, should I imagine the religious practitioner in some idyllic terms, like a bee, free-flowing, I would even say uninhibited, following their appetite wherever it would lead them? I guess that's also where we should recognize the limits of the metaphor. In our conception of boutinage, we try to take a middle ground, a view that both recognizes individual choice as well as insists on understanding the binding power of religious and social traditions. So while religious identity ought not to be automatically equated with tradition and, and culture, we also shouldn't isolate boutinage from people's socio-religious context. At least to some extent, individual practice is embedded and inscribed within social norms, as well as within formal religious and institutional expectations. So the boutinage metaphor not only draws attention to the act of foraging itself, but also offers a heuristic device together with a whole host of uh, terms that we have developed with which we can begin to understand the dynamic relations between essentially three key objects. We have the practitioner, the church, and the society within which one functions. And this is likened, if we would, to the bee and the flower and the hive, which is the society. The articulation between the three elements is central for understanding our approach and method, as the multi-sided comparative perspective allows us to identify how local social norms bear on individual practice while still retaining dialogue with the formal institutional expectations. And importantly, this threefold perspective offers a word of caution against generalizing all members of a given social group or geographic space or religious community. And this is how the comparative aspect of our research, which I remind you was in Kenya, Ghana, Brazil and Switzerland, helps us to isolate different social elements. So if we want to grasp the idea whereby boutinage also has its limitations, we can consider the notion of territories. And by territories, I mean the imagined spaces of legitimate religious mobility. Territories. You mean like religious traditions? So Christianity is a territory and Islam is another one? Yes and no. When we think about Christianity and Islam as two distinct religious universes, we are already embracing a particular construction of the religious universe, which is set for us by religious specialists and not always adhered to by lay practitioners. 
So think, Ruth, for example, about various syncretistic groups. And in Africa, we have many what we call AICs or African independent churches. And these combine traditional African or neo-traditional motifs with Christian ones. It is clear that different groups, as well as different individuals, would have quite different conceptions of borders. I'd like to think of territories as quite personal, in fact. One person may have no problem crossing over to another religious universe altogether, uh, feeling that they, and I quote here a Brazilian novelist that we have used, drink water from any river. Another person might have a more narrow conception of territory. For example, by limiting oneself not only to the Christian universe, but to a particular tradition such as Catholicism or Pentecostalism, or even a specific school within one of those. Interesting that you mentioned Pentecostalism. I've looked through your book and I see that Pentecostalism takes a central part in it. I think we often in the global north don't know much about it. Yet in Kenya, it appears to be quite big, right? Absolutely, yes. I should say that uh, Kenya is a predominantly Christian country, although it does have a sizable Muslim minority that is mainly located along the coast. And like in many places in the global south, from Latin America to Southeast Asia, Kenya's Christianity has undergone incredible transformation in recent years especially since the 1980s or so and the rise of uh, the movement known as neo-Pentecostalism. Incidentally, I must say the, the movement is so large that scholars are talking about over half a billion Pentecostals in the world today, if you can imagine that. I guess we don't hear much about this movement because it is often located uh, within poorer communities and it is predominantly followed in the global south. Still. Numbers here ought to be taken with a pinch of salt, as it really depends on definitions, and we are talking about a highly diverse and diffused movement. And people might even consider themselves as both Pentecostal and, say, Anglican at the same time, which makes matter even more confusing. In any event, half a billion followers for a movement that many of us have not even heard of, that's quite something. You mentioned it's a pretty diverse movement. What are its broad characteristics? There's a lot to be said about the Pentecostal or neo-Pentecostal movement. It's a fascinating movement. I would simply refer to the work of Alan Anderson, one of the um, well-known uh, researchers studying the movement, and the way that he defines it through four simple categories. Firstly, it tends to paint the world in dichotomous terms as an epic battleground between demonic forces and godly forces. Secondly, it tends to emphasize financial prosperity and overall success as the right of every believer, the claimable right. Thirdly, it is marked by an entrepreneurial spirit that manifests in the employment of, say, corporate-like models of operation, emphasis on the use of the media and social media and information technology, and a tendency to cross over into politics. Fourthly, and lastly, it has a strong evangelizing agenda and a global mission, and is geared towards a wide circulation of ideas, ideologies, leaders, commodities. I guess I would add to these uh, that the neo-Pentecostal movement tends to concentrate in urban areas, 
an orientation made possible by the movement's flexible modes of operation and its embrace of modernity with all of its technologies that we have just enumerated. Still, notwithstanding such broadly shared characteristics, as I said, this family of churches is highly heterogeneous and poses substantial challenges to those seeking to define it or, like myself, simply trying to understand it. So we thus see that the movement combines between an otherworldly vision or mythology and concrete thisworldly modes of operation. And for me, that is exactly what makes it so fascinating, this tension between otherworldly ideas and very concrete, sometimes mundane modes of practice. It emphasizes a highly diffused form of entrepreneurial Christianity, Everyone could potentially start a new church, and they often do. It is also potentially equalizing and, and even radical, I would say, in that everyone, at least in theory, could have direct access to divine inspiration. And by the way, for this reason, the movement is sometimes referred to as a second reformation um, with an equally great emancipatory potential, like the first reformation. So God, imagine, might be speaking to you directly, regardless of whether you are a man, a woman, a child, an old person. Again, all of that is in theory. In practice, however, this potentially subversive undercurrent is often attenuated by the fact that this form of Christianity is also highly conservative. So imagine that people would uh, abstain from alcohol consumption or from premarital sex. They also have strong literalist overtones in the sense that the Bible is often read and uncritically applied to just about any area of one's life. Still, the idea of personal gifts, divine gifts as they call them, uh, that offer some direct connection to God and, and, and special favor, put a strong emphasis on individual charisma. Some preachers enjoy reputation as especially uh, favorable by God and particularly powerful in attracting divine favors and are therefore sought after for consultation so people would go them primarily for healing or divination. Incidentally, some scholars have noted that this way of thinking is marked by neoliberal concepts of self. And in general, the explosion of the neo-Pentecostal movement since the 1980s, as I said earlier, has often been understood as going hand in hand with the contemporary economic trends that we see in the world. Speaking of which, I hear that the Pentecostal movement is often associated with something called the prosperity gospel. What actually does this mean? Well, I already briefly mentioned Alan Anderson's emphasis on contemporary Pentecostalism's preoccupation with material culture. But considering the centrality of such teachings, maybe I should elaborate a little bit more. The prosperity gospel is an influential yet pretty loosely defined current that is associated with Pentecostalism but is not limited thereto. The prosperity gospel teaches that God's love to his true followers would manifest in gifts of material abundance within their lifetimes. It is sometimes referred to as the so-called health and wealth gospel. As part of the prosperity teachings, churches have been increasingly aligning themselves with organizational thinking and strategies borrowed from the business world, while incorporating business and financial teachings, for example, regarding the importance of saving or avoiding debt, into their formal services. 
I guess many of these ideas will be familiar to those among our listeners who have had contact with American evangelicals, as they have had a lot of influence on the Pentecostal movement. This makes me think, from what I know about American evangelicals, they often emphasize the idea of becoming a born-again Christian, a saved persona. Yes, exactly. And this applies to Kenya as well. And once you're saved, you're always saved. But wait, you work on religious mobility. What happens if you were Pentecostal and then quit the church, maybe even change religion? Do you stop being saved? Yeah, that's a really good question. From a theological perspective, a saved person cannot be unsaved. What they can do, however, is lapse, what is known as backsliding. This creates a lot of confusion in Kenya, sometimes even moral panic, as a lot of rumors and accusations of hypocrisy circulate and are directed at people who are supposed to be born again and live by certain moral codes and standards, but in reality do not. It is said about such people that they preach water and drink wine, and you hear that a lot. Have such accusations of hypocrisy been a dominant aspect of your work? Absolutely, yes. In fact, they were so prevalent that they soon became one of the dominant threads of my work. And I didn't even intentionally look for them, but I soon realized that I simply cannot ignore them either. Wherever I turned, I saw Kenyans grappling with concerns about religious legitimacy and religion's many abuses. These concerns I shorthanded to myself, but also to some of my readers, as the three S's, scandals, sects, and Satanism. This can be a big deal. People's salvation is dependent on choosing the right shepherd, and opting for the wrong kind of company can compromise their dignity and at times even their lives. I'll give you one example, quite a dramatic one. It involves a young interviewee of mine in Nairobi who stopped going to church altogether after her cousin has been brutally murdered at the order of that cousin's pastor. The pastor kept her, that cousin, as something of a mistress. And once she got pregnant, he simply panicked and he feared a scandal. So, of course, he was not supposed to be sleeping with his followers. And this is really an extreme example, I promise you, but I can think of many others of a more mundane nature. So think of people stealing money from the offering basket or making hyperbolic promises of miracles or curing people of HIV. Um, leaders abusing their power to manipulate their flock for personal gain and many other such examples. One major concern regards the prosperity gospel and its supposed abuse by greedy individuals. Wherever you go in Kenya, you hear people talking about how religion today has been degraded into a commercial enterprise. I'll give you another example as a way of illustrating just how prevalent such critiques are. It involves an encounter that I had with a Nairobi street hawker who was seized by an epileptic seizure just as I was passing by. As the guy was regaining his senses, he saw me and he asked, who am I and what am I doing in Kenya? I obviously look foreign. I introduced myself as a researcher studying religion in Kenya, to which the guy instantly replied, still in a daze, ah, oh, those churches today, they are just businesses. So you see, this way of thinking is deeply ingrained, so much so that it reflects an almost reflexive, automatic response by so many in Kenya. 
And yet, if I understand you correctly, Kenyans, on the whole, are highly practicing. Moreover, in your book, you also speak of religion's public and political role. And note that churches are among the country's key agents of political, social, and economic capital. Religious leaders are looked up to in brokering peace or commenting on important legislative steps, such as regarding the LGBTQ community or women's right to abortion. How do you explain this tension? There's certainly a lot of frustration, I won't lie to you, within the Kenyan public. And people feel that religious institutions have somehow failed them. In a way, you can also say that people's trust in religious institutions has been eroding. And there seems to be a sign that public admission of atheism is gaining greater currency in Kenya today. But people still feel that, on the whole, they need religion and would largely shy from declaring themselves secular, as we would sometimes in the West. It's a tension that I often encountered in Kenya, whereby people state their aversion and distrust towards religious institutions, and at the same time they would say, ah, but I need God in my life. And that usually implies partaking in a religious community. One way of handling this tension is by not really going to church, but instead practicing at home. In our research, we called such people church zappers, in reference to the televangelist shows that they sometimes follow from home on Sunday or throughout the week. Televangelists are very popular in Kenya. So this seems to take us back to the question of religious mobility. I already understand that you make the case whereby religious mobility is a widespread, possibly everyday occurrence in Kenya today, especially in urban areas. You did your research in the capital Nairobi and in the city of Kisumu in western Kenya. Kisumu is close to Lake Victoria in the direction of the border with Uganda. Well, would you say that it is this tension we just talked about between seeking religion and feeling disappointed with its institutional abuses that drives religious mobility in Kenya today? That's one hypothesis, and it's a very uh, prominent one. Uh, people are looking for a miracle, you might say, that would heal them from some physical malady or offer them fertility or simply wealth. And they would go to one church for some time. They would stay for a bit, hoping for some tangible changes in their lives. And once they're disappointed, if they're disappointed uh, by such hyperbolic promises, they would move on. However, the problem with such a functionalist explanation is that it can be quite reductionist. We engage with religion for various reasons, and not just because we need something concrete, important though it might be. In fact, motivation for religious mobility are very hard to disentangle. As we are talking about motivations and reasoning, then perhaps in order to flesh out some of these abstract ideas, you can offer a little illustration. Could you give us some real-life examples of the religious experiences and challenges that your interlocutors have been facing? I'll give you two examples. First, let's think about one interviewee. Let's call her Jodi. Jodi is a 30-year-old single woman who was brought up in a strict Anglican family upcountry in Central Province, not so far from Nairobi. Both her parents have been active in the Anglican Church. 
Her mother was actually originally from another church, an independent Pentecostal one, but she shifted to Anglicanism after having married Jody's father, which is very common. Having arrived in Nairobi some five years before our interview in search of employment, Judy shares an apartment with her sister, alongside whom she works as a salesperson there selling flowers on the roadside. In the absence of an Anglican church in their immediate vicinity, Judy and her sister are obliged to go downtown for Sunday services. But while her sister is a staunch Anglican and would never miss a service, Judy is much more flexible. Trying to eke out a living, she spends some Sundays at work, while on other Sundays she might attend one of two nearby Pentecostal churches. One of the two she attends quite regularly, having first been invited there by her aunt. While she appreciates the presence of her aunt, she would sometimes attend the church even on her own. Having no single fixed congregation, Judy does not tithe, which is an important marker of membership in Kenya. You give 10% of your salary to the church that you belong to. Instead, she contributes her offering every Sunday depending on the church that she happens to be attending. At the same time, she insists that she has remained Anglican, and she claims that she only visits other denominations insofar as their teachings correspond to the Anglican teachings that she was brought up with. When I asked whether she considers herself a born-again Christian, she responded with a hesitant affirmation. She said, yeah, well... And she explained that simply by following Christ, she believes herself to be born again, but she was never actually born again through a ritual the way that Pentecostals might imagine. She keeps her Bible within reach and she reads it at work whenever time allows it. Working on the roadside, Judy and her sister receive frequent visits from passing evangelists of various traditions and churches. Judy herself feels that being familiar with the Bible thus gives her ammunition for countering the preachings of those passing evangelists. And let's look now at another example. Let's take that of Rachel. Rachel is an upper-middle-class woman, very different from Jodi, um, in her mid-40s. She has had three children with her husband, who has been in and out of hospitals for many years now due to some chronic illness. She's a highly active woman, and actually at the time of our interview, she was completing her master's degree, part of which she was pursuing overseas, while working full-time, taking care of three children and a sick husband. Rachel was born in a Catholic household, and her family moved around a lot when she was young. As an adolescent, she attended a non-Catholic high school, and she got saved, that is, became a Pentecostal born again, while maintaining her Catholic faith, although she does admit that she has often backslid. In university, Rachel met her husband, who came from the African Inland Church, and she shifted to his denomination. And again, it's very common that women shift to their fiancé's church. She explained that the change wasn't a big issue for her because, well, they pray to the same God and we all believe in Jesus Christ. As she said, quote, the difference between the two churches had nothing to do with God, but it had everything to do with habits. Interestingly, her fiancé's family insisted that Rachel should get pregnant before they could have a church wedding, so that she would prove her fertility, which Rachel suggested is a traditional rather than Christian practice. 
Although she had not assumed an official role in her current church, she has grown to like it and she feels at home there. At the same time, she admits that a part of her is still influenced by Catholicism and her upbringing. She would sometimes visit the Catholic Church with her still Catholic family, for example, when she goes back home to the countryside, explaining that she only goes there with a reason. At the same breath, however, Rachel did admit to me that she sometimes goes to the Catholic chapel in downtown Nairobi together with a friend, where they would hold informal prayer sessions to pray for their families. For example, right before we conducted the interview, she told me that she went to the chapel to pray for her son, who was about to take his final exams in school. In recent years, due to her husband's condition and her desperate need for divine intervention on his behalf, she also began to seek sporadic consultations with Christian healers, to whom she is directed by acquaintances and friends. Although she has her misgivings about consulting such healers, and she emphasized that she would reject visiting non-Christian ones, Rachel explained that, and I quote her again, I have a sick husband, so sometimes I'm so vulnerable that I would follow everything as long as it's religious, to get my husband well, because I love him. So I'm so gullible to fake Christianity. You are describing quite complex life situations related to factors such as migration, illness, family status and living arrangements, employment conditions, precarity. When you look at someone like Judy or Rachel, and the way that they live out their religious lives, which are clearly quite dynamic, what are the questions that you ask? They both seem to have been fairly mobile. Do you seek to understand their motivation for mobility, or do you ask other questions? As I already briefly mentioned, the question of motivation is a tricky one, and it confronts us, in addition to the challenge of reductionism, with an epistemological obstacle. Namely, how can we say for certain that some reasoning that an interlocutor has given us is indeed complete and exhaustive? This question kept me quite preoccupied. And in my own research, I decided to replace the question of motivation with what I instead call logics. I identified three logics in particular, practical, social, and inclinational. So the practical logic relates to concrete needs such as healing or the pursuit of prosperity that we already alluded to earlier. Social logic relates to social relations, for example, being invited to church by a neighbor or caring about social status. Inclinational logic is essentially everything else that cannot be reduced to the other two. For example, going to a church where one feels that they belong or where they are spiritually nourished or where they simply feel good, because church could sometimes simply be an entertaining Sunday pastime. One of the implications of the three logics approach is the avoidance of a straightforward association of religious mobility with clear-cut utility and personal gain-seeking. Indeed, keeping the three logics in view at all times allowed me to consider the negotiated trade-off and maybe tensions between the three elements. Above all, this approach helped me to consider the interplay between social expectations and personal gain. Think about how a person would ignore social expectations at his or her own peril. 
as practical gains may be offset by social penalties, such as the depreciation of a social image. Such tension and the risk of potential backfire require a nuanced understanding of expectations by the dominant ethos. For example, I would avoid too much mobility, or I would limit mobility to certain religious territories, or I would refrain from seeming too zealous by refusing, say, to accompany my neighbor to the church on occasion. Indeed, I remember one interviewee who explained to me that it is fine perhaps going to five churches, but it is too much going to 20. And I recall leaving that interview and thinking to myself, what did she mean by that? And what did she mean by that? Well, most Kenyans have what we may refer to as a center and periphery of religious practice. There's a single place where they see themselves as members, and at the same time there's a multiplicity of secondary practices that they embark on from time to time, some more regularly than others, of course. Kenyans capture this through a distinction between membership and visit. This distinction, in fact, is so widespread that it was used by almost all of my interlocutors across the denominational board. It points at the possibility of maintaining several and concurrent religious engagements, something that, in my understanding, is often neglected and is certainly under-theorized in scholarly work. This distinction I found particularly revelatory and drew from it as the starting point of my theoretical elaboration. The idea of a center and periphery, or single membership and multiple visits, captures the hierarchical balance between one's place of institutional belonging and secondary explorations within other places of worship, be they Christian or non-Christian. During my research, practitioners sometimes admitted that they would be interested in familiarizing themselves with another denomination or religion, but were quick to add that they would only go there for a visit. The fact that religious visits are an established social institution helps in legitimizing such explorative tendencies, subsuming them into a familiar paradigm based on reciprocity and solidarity. In reality, however, local parlance allows the term visit to be used also in reference to instances of prolonged and sustained secondary religious engagements. Here, the term visit can be misleadingly diminutive, which is perhaps made to diffuse tensions vis-à-vis one's membership. At the same time, I noted that the notion of membership is commonly contrasted with that of visits. Though it is a normative, institutional term, Its actual application by my interviewees was quite loose. By and large, my interviewees used it to assert the center of their religious belonging even when not entertaining a formal membership status. Indeed, some have gone to the extent of stressing a distinction between member or member by profession and a legal member, arguing that only the latter includes official institutional registration. I would therefore argue that this basic distinction between membership and visits can be understood as somehow complementary, offering a measure between socially respectable centeredness and a healthy dose of exploration. I see. But if I understand you correctly, such complementarity between what Kenyans call membership and visits only refers to present practices. 
But if people are indeed so mobile, then what about past practices? What happens to them? This is a major question that I sought to touch on in my book. Essentially, I make the case for what I call religious repertoires, which I build around the concept of familiarization, which came up regularly in my interviews, in all sorts of variations. The starting point for this approach is a significant strand of data that attracted my attention and which had to do with instances of return to past religious traditions. Unlike the last themes that we have just discussed, this one was not readily presented through a common terminology, but rather revealed itself through interviewees' biographical narratives. This led me to reflect on the distinction between those religious traditions that were never practiced and those that have once been practiced but were later put aside, sometimes temporarily. Towards the end of my fieldwork, this interest became more dominant and I began posing interviewees direct questions about the ongoing relevance of their past religious practices. The result was the development of the idea of inactive religious traditions, which are familiar yet somewhat dormant. This development confronted me with a theoretical challenge, namely how to account for religious bonds that are not currently manifest through active practice. How do I capture them? This is what led me to think in terms of trajectories of familiarization. I'll simplify things and simply say that I propose that we think in terms of an imaginary familiarity threshold, beyond which a religious tradition is internalized into one's religious repertoire and is ready to be acted upon again in the future. This was helped by the popular institution of church visits, which we have already discussed, whose social significance I understood precisely in that it offers such a fundamental moment of familiarization. First-time visits offer an experience of immersion that I suggest is geared towards establishing familiarity with the congregation and the teachings and practices, and by that facilitating return and integration into one's religious repertoire. In other words, whether or not a visitor would decide to pursue ties further with the church in the long run, the very fact of familiarization is transformative of the nature of relations between the individual and the religious tradition in question. But this opens a whole new chapter in our discussion for which it might be better to direct the listeners to the book. Before we conclude, may I ask you what in your view would be the key takeaway from your study? The encounters in Kenya have taught me a lot about the significance of flexibility, specifically in circumstances of precarity, which is unfortunately very common in urban Kenya. It also taught me a lot about the interplay of identity elements and about the changeability of identity performance. But to articulate all of that in more general and perhaps theoretical terms, I guess the main conclusion is the suggestion whereby religious mobility is not an anomaly, but rather an integral part of a dynamic identity in which overflowing institutional boundaries is the norm rather than the exception. Practitioners creatively manage their religious identity 
forming original constellations between pre-existing religious traditions, often in response to changing needs and circumstances, but also as a way of living out their social bonds and commitments. And while we may not like to think of religious identity as a system, I must say that the term does point to a certain connectivity between multiple religious exposures. There is some alignment, some choreography in the interplay and complementarity between people's multiple religious engagements. We spoke about the center and the periphery, the familiar and the unfamiliar, the synchronic and the diachronic. There is, of course, already a vibrant scholarly debate around all these questions, and so my work and the theoretical approach that it proposes are merely another brick in this long-standing discussion. Is this a worldwide phenomenon? Does it manifest a postmodern condition regarding the freedom to experiment, to change location, profession, spouses, etc? It might be. I think if we compare between the case of Kenya and, say, that of Switzerland, which also fell within the purview of our research, then in Kenya you do see more of connection to a person's center, the church where one belongs. Whereas in Switzerland, religious identity tends to be a lot more diffused. So what makes the case of Kenya so interesting, or that of Ghana or Brazil for that matter, is the combination between strong alignment with a religious tradition, a sense that one should belong to a particular denomination, and that explorative tendency that I guess we all have. Going one step further, I suggest that we extract from my research in Kenya but also from the other studies in Brazil and Ghana and Switzerland, and consider key contemporary issues related to religion and society, such as the prevalence of fundamentalism and, and radicalism. Fundamentalism and radicalism? In what way? If you think about religious fundamentalism, it tends to be thought of in terms of resistance to the changes of modernity. In the context of such resistance, the setting of rigid religious boundaries is particularly important. My colleagues and I propose that by engaging in everyday religious mobility, or to use the term that we suggested in the start, boutinage, people are sending out the unifying message that can counter the inflammatory sociopolitical potential of religious cleavages. More research is definitely needed on the topic, and indeed my colleagues and I are continuing along these lines. Still, I would suggest that the outcomes of such mobility often include interreligious or cross-denominational tolerance and respect that embrace human solidarity and undermine extremist ideologies. In other words, by accompanying my neighbor, say, to her church, whether only once or sporadically or even regularly, I am sending out a message regarding the human bonds that tie us together and imply that they are stronger than any institutional, ideological, political or theological divide. The passage between multiple religious traditions in the course of one's lifetime can thus help cultivate ecumenical sensitivity, specifically in the context of religious political tensions, such as we unfortunately find in Kenya these days, and in other parts of East Africa for that matter, not to mention the Middle East. 
Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you very much, Ruth. You have been listening to Research Bites, the podcast of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities and Social Sciences. In this podcast, we hope to offer a taste or a bite of the research taking place in our society and the kind of conversations taking place in its offices, hallways, and indeed, the kitchen. Additional episodes discuss matters such as medieval women's letters from the Cairo Gniza and the changes in the way some rare languages in Northeast India express both you and me. Our thanks to Dr. Gregor Bus, who helped produce this episode, Omri Bendor is our series producer, and Ori Dror is our sound recorder and editor. The Buber Society is a German-Israeli collaboration housed at the Hebrew University and funded by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research. For more information about the Martin Buber Society of Fellows, about this episode and about additional episodes, please visit our website, buberfellows.huji.ac.il. That's buberfellows.huji.ac.il.